Hello and welcome to Scuttlebutt, a Marine Corps Association podcast. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hello. And we have a good one for you today with Will Schick. Yeah, Will, uh, he's awesome. Um, as you'll hear in the interview, uh, he and I uh, went to American University. Uh, we're a part of the uh, Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program. He's a uh, former Marine, uh, got out as a major, was an Intel Bubba, and uh, did two pumps in Afghanistan. Um, so he definitely fits in with our Afghan uh, Afghanistan theme that we got going on right now. So hopefully you guys enjoyed Miles Vining last week or la, last episode. And uh, yeah, we're going to continue to uh, sort of unpack some of these um, experiences from people who were there firsthand and and, and uh, really delve into what it was like and, and what what it is like now that everyone's home and and uh, we are no longer there. Yeah, this kind of happen, kind of happenstance. We've uh, rearranged our launch plans. This is only episode four, uh, so <laughs> an awesome four, by the way. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I can't say we. Hey, hey, no one could have done better. Adolf, the cap to you, either. sir, yeah. and you as well, sir. <laughs> so the uh, with the pull out of Afghanistan, and you know, we're, Marine Corps Association is more than just professional development. We like to uh, tell the stories of Marines, absolutely, and try and bring Marines together and connect the generations, and just. All sorts of things. So between this podcast, Leatherneck Magazine, Marine Corps Gazette, there's a lot of different angles we can attack uh, how Afghanistan went, uh, what we learned from it. Absolutely. And and they're all different formats. You know, so, you know, Leatherneck uh, is going to unpack it in certain ways. Gazette is going to take that sort of professional academic look at, uh, you know, big blue arrow strategic stuff. And so what we're wanting to do is really get the boots on the ground perspective and sort of like we've talked about in, in previous um, uh, episodes and, and what you'll hear is us just sort of uh, dialing in on the narrative and that, you know, the things um, that happened mattered uh, no matter whether you were, you know, that Medal of Honor winner, task force commander, or just the guy who stood post over a district center government place and kept things going um, or the guy who fixed the generators to keep the lights on. Like, all of that stuff mattered, and just because we're not there anymore doesn't mean that our stories go away. So, yeah. if you have bread, uh, bread, if you have breathed Afghanistan, or air, ate the bread, you can or eat, ate the, bread. The, bread, yeah. or ate the bread. I hear they have bread in Afghanistan, it's very good bread, <laughs> very actually. Good. Um, so if you have breathed the air, eaten the bread in Afghanistan, we would and love bled the blood, <laughs> bled the blood. We would love to hear from you. Uh, so just uh, reach out to us. We'll be on Facebook, Twitter, yeah. Instagram. Absolutely. And yeah, just because you're not on the show doesn't mean you can't be part of the show. So yeah, please feel free to give us comments. And you know, completely objectively speaking, like I have no dog in the fight here, but I think the content that we've had thus far has been pretty exceptional. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, if if you, like me, have... Uh, you know, opinions about this stuff or feel like somebody has said something awesome or maybe not so awesome, please let us know. Uh, let us know you're out there and, and we want to hear from you. Yeah. Um, we can work on ways to get your voice on podcasts too. So it just doesn't hurt to. Uh, yeah. Or contribute. Yeah. Contribute yeah. to the Gazette. Contribute to Leatherneck. Yeah. Uh, let's get it out there. Lots of avenues. Lots of stories to tell. Yeah. And it go- obviously it goes beyond Afghanistan too. Absolutely right. So, Absolutely right. I mean, like, I'm not going to discredit any Marine who's hanging out in Korea right now just because they're in Korea and not Afghanistan. So all the stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or Quantico. That's or where Quantico, we are. The crossroads. Uh, yeah, the crossroads. We're in Quantico, by the way. If you're in the area, we'd love to say hi. So uh, with all that said, and without revealing too much from the interview with Will Schick, which is excellent, by the way, yep. 
Um, I do want to give a shout out this time before the interview um, to some deserving Marines and friends of Marines. Uh, we recently helped hold the uh, Wounded Warrior Leadership Awards. Um, and we got six names here I'd like to shout out. First is the uh, Section Leader of the Year from, uh, sta for Staff Sergeant Eduardo Mendoza from the Wounded Warrior Battalion West. Uh, the Recovering Service Member of the Year, uh, Sergeant Edward D. Yee, also from Wounded Warrior West. Uh, we've got Enlisted Leader of the Year, Gunnery Sergeant Richard A. Galvin, who is from Wounded Warrior Battalion East. And we've got uh, the Officer Leader of the Year, Captain Evan A. Amon from the Battalion West. And the two civilians are Civilian Staff Member of the Year, Mrs. LaShawn Carrasquillo uh, from the Wounded Warrior Regiment. And the Family Caregiver of the Year, Mrs. Taria Williams from Wounded Warrior Battalion West. So uh, Battalion West really uh, coming strong this year. Yeah. So. But, hey, and for everyone, not just the award winners, but everyone who participated in such a great cause like Wounded Warrior, uh, thank you for your service. But especially to these award winners, thank you for everything you do. Uh, it really, again, uh, it means so much. And uh, these are the types of stories that uh, we want to capture. So thank you and Semper Fidelis. And you can't just, there's not enough names to be able to shout out for anybody tied to Wounded Warrior. So. Absolutely. All right, so without further ado... Yeah, just one thing real quick oh. on Will Schnick. I, w I really hope our listeners take away uh, how Will was able to recapture the passion um, that he had as a Marine uh, and then apply it to something so important as uh, you know, uh, advocacy for uh, those who are experiencing homelessness. And so just for you listeners out there, just know that whether you're in uniform, out of uniform, missing being in uniform or glad that you're not wearing it anymore, uh, there is a way to capture that sense of community, that sense of purpose, and uh, I think Will epitomizes that for us. So, yes, I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. All right. Without further ado, Will Schick. Bye. Welcome, everyone, to another uh, installment of Scuttlebutt. Um, I am your host, Vic, and I am here with Will Schick. Will is a journalist and reporter for Street Sense. He was an active duty Marine for 11 years, uh, got out as a major, um, then went to school and got his master's in fine art at American University and is now full time with Street Sense and really looking forward to picking his brain on storytelling and the art of how art and life sort of mutually coexist and how one is a reflection of the other and vice versa. So, Will, man, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, awesome. So uh, just take as much time or be as brief as you want, but if you could for our listeners, just um, sure. in your own words, sort of just tell us a little bit about who you are and your sort of your journey through life and the core and then where you are now. Sure, uh, absolutely. Uh, so I spent um, 11 years in the Marine Corps, uh, where I was an intelligence officer. You know, I did a couple of tours to Afghanistan, um, my last tour ending in 2018. Uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I decided to pursue an MFA in creative writing and not go into sort of the contractor uh, intel field or try to seek out a job uh, as that. And as I was studying um, for this degree in creative writing, really being interested in fiction and storytelling, I uh, stumbled upon 
an opportunity um, to start working at a local street paper where you know, we wrote about issues related to homelessness in the city. Um, and I kind of run into that opportunity because, you know, one day I was on Google and I uh, Googled sort of volunteer opportunity. You know, I just when I when I gotten out, I uh, sat around for about uh, two months with, you know, at home and that gets old really quickly. <laughs> so I was looking for something to do. Uh, and then I, I kind of just uh, Google, you know, volunteer opportunity. I found this place uh, called Miriam's Kitchen. So unconnected to uh, Street Sense, which is where I work now. Uh, Miriam's Kitchen is a local um, uh, organization in D.C., like a no- local nonprofit that uh, has programming for people who are homeless. So um, they give, they provide breakfast and dinner. But in addition to that, they have other programs like a writer's group where you basically go in, you have coffee, uh, and then you, you chat you know, you read something together and you chat about it and then you go through a writing exercise. So I started working on that. And then through that, I I learned about this street paper. So I thought, you know, I'd look into that. And eventually I started writing for them uh, on a volunteer basis. Um, And then as I finished my degree, I ended up becoming a full-time journalist working for them. Uh, And then also this other news outlet called the DC Line, which is a local news blog based here in DC. And so the, the job I have now is the partnership between both. That's awesome. And then uh, we'll put this all in the uh, show notes for our listeners um, so they can check it out. But um, you can go to streetsensemedia.org or you just Google Street Sense Will Schick, S-C-H-I-C-K, and you will, sort of bio will come up, the whole list of articles that you've written. And like, really, man, we graduated what in May and you've already got like, looks like a couple dozen articles already yeah. down the range, right. dude. So right. that's fantastic. Yeah. You do a lot of advocacy for the homeless, man. So uh, really appreciate all of your efforts and sort of, you know, av- obviously advocating for those who, who need it most. So dude, thank you for everything you're doing. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm just happy to be writing and, and writing about issues that I think are important. Uh, cool, dude. So um, kind of talking about your path to the Marine Corps, I know this is like for Marines, it's the hardest subject to talk about. But for all of those who are listening, those who are, um, you know, in uniform now, maybe recently out of uniform, just tell us a little bit about your path, because I feel like both of ours are a little bit untraditional and also too, you know, both of us being of mixed race heritage, like did that, how much did that play into sort of um, forming your worldview and then bringing you to, um, you know, finally signing up to join the Marine Corps? Yeah. You know, I think that's a really interesting question because, you know, so my mother is from Korea and she immigrated to the U S in the eighties. And, you know, my father, my biological father was a, uh, uh, was a veteran. Uh, an Air Force veteran. And so uh, this idea of military service and then also sort of proving your worth to your country, right, and and showing sort of uh, a value to your country and, and doing something in return for that was uh, something I was kind of raised with and, and, and thought about just a lot growing up that, you know, you'd have to appreciate the fact that you're an American and you have these things. And so um, when it came to the decision of joining the Marine Corps, however, uh, I don't think any of those things sort of came to mind immediately. What comes to mind is, you know, I'm senior in college. Uh, I went to a, a college in upstate New York. Uh, at the time, you know, it was 
the Iraq war was sort of at its height and uh, I was getting drunk at a party. And, uh, <laughs> Weird. Having one of these passionate sort of uh, debates about whether or not the U.S. should be at war in another country. And somebody had said something about how, you know, it's not like you would ever join the military, right? It would, it's not like you would ever uh, go out there and, and be on the line, right? To, to risk your, your life for something your country wants you to do. And I remember thinking, seeing, hearing that and thinking, no, of course I would do something. Uh, and it was more like a throwdown sort of challenge. Uh, and then when I started to reach out to Marine Corps recruiters uh, and others to, to talk about it, it, you know, Marine Corps wasn't the only place I turned to. You know, um, I turned to, I talked to Army recruiters and Air Force recruiters, and it was only the Marine Corps recruiters who were saying stuff like, oh, dude, you're not the right fit. I'm sorry. You know, you know, you, you, you just couldn't make it. No offense to you, but you, you just wouldn't make it through this. And so that kind of got under my skin as well. And so I kind of fell sort of hook, line and sinker uh, to this uh, challenge. You know, I, I think of the Marty McFly back to the future, you know, did you call me chicken? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, thinking back, you know, early 20s, uh, I, I responded to that and, and I joined the Marine Corps. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that this idea of service to the country and all that was wasn't at all in my mind. But I, 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 would, I do think that there was some of that reverse psychology uh, that had happened that um, also kind of influenced the decision to join. And and when I joined, I remember, you know, sign, you know, signing, uh, you know, running my first PFT, you know, where the gunny is driving his car behind me as I'm doing my three mile down some suburban street in, in New York somewhere. And then, uh, and then, you know, months later, flying down to OCS and Quantico and being at the airport Reagan. Uh, and I remember getting off the flight in Reagan and seeing, I didn't know it at the time, I thought these were the drill instructors, right? I didn't even know it was a sergeant instructor. But I saw these guys get, you know, yelling at, at, at folks, uh, grabbing, grabbing their luggage and getting onto the bus to Quantico. At the time, I didn't understand that these were just like Lance Corporals or whatever, just being, <laughs> yeah. you know, yelling at a bunch of guys that are going to be officers. Uh, and so then I just ducked away to uh, uh, one of the bathrooms there, uh, looked at the mirror for a little bit and and asked myself, do I really want to do this? And I'm like, well, you know, I haven't even tried. Uh, let's let's get back out there. So I grabbed my luggage, got on the bus and uh, met somebody who was like, dude, who was private service. I was like, dude, these guys are like. They're not part of the program. They're just being <laughs> difficult for you know to be difficult. Um, uh, and then you know, I, and then you know, I, that turned into what uh, you know over a decade of of being in um, and and staying in. That's awesome. Yeah, I, a very similar. You know, I I definitely had a hero complex, so I, I can't say that that part didn't play a lot for me. But yeah, same sort of thing. Like, um, uh, you know, coming from a refugee family as well. Um, there was this sense of like, you know, there are there are a few sort of sort of the difference between the immigrant worldview and the refugee worldview is the sense of like the need to give back or this idea that, you know, um, that we need to contribute now that we're here. But for my family, it was like um, it was through medicine, like, you know, the quickest way for a, a, a refugee family to climb the ladder is, you know, to be a doctor it's really a simple way you go to school and then all of a sudden you're already you know a few rungs up from where you left off and so my family was pretty upset <laughs> that i didn't go the doctor route but at the same time like all of the men in my family were like yeah do that man. <laughs> um but yeah same sort of thing so i went there and they're like 
Yeah, uh, we're sort of full, so I don't think you can make it uh, in time. Uh, you know, maybe next year if you're still interested, come see me. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't want me to join? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, I'll get it done. And so yeah, same sort of thing. Like that that challenge is thrown down. So that's funny. I, I wonder, um, which is something probably about being on the street and just knowing what buttons buttons to push for certain folks. But yeah, that challenge is definitely there for me as well. It's pretty funny. And that was all the way in California. So there's something in the water, man, for those guys. They can just they can smell it on you. Well, that's really cool. And so I guess, you know, speaking of refugees, and, and I don't want to go down too far rabbit hole because there's plenty of other podcasts and forums that'll delve a little more deeply and probably a little more formally into current events. But I do want to speak because both of us have experience in Afghan Afghanistan. And like we were talking a little bit before, uh, the interview began. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty crazy time. So a lot of folks reaching out, looking for help. Uh, would love nothing more than to be able to tell stories about their refugee experience. And so, like, what are some of your, I guess, thoughts on uh, what's going on right now, especially considering you were uh, just there, uh, what, 2018, you said? Yeah. Last yeah. tour. Um, yeah, do you have any, just some, some thoughts on something? Yeah, so, you know, I was in Afghanistan from 2017 to 2018 as a police advisor to the Afghan National Police Force based out of Lashkargal and Helmand. And so, um, you know, I was at a base where it was mostly, you know, Afghan locals, right? But we were advising them directly. It wasn't a coalition base. And so I was kind of in a unique position where I worked closely with a lot of Afghan translators and also like Afghan, um, service members, either uh, ANA or ANP. Um, so this this past week has been pretty hectic and, and difficult, not just emotionally um, um, because of what's happening, but also because of, uh, uh, to be quite frank, you know, pleas and cries for help that I'm getting, right? Via uh, Facebook messages, emails, text messages, phone calls from people asking uh, to get out. And so, you know, I know people who have uh, I know somebody right now who, who has a, like a special immigrant visa, uh, had, had, had it scheduled, um, was, was scheduled to be interviewed at the embassy in Kabul at the end of this month and is now sort of uh, frantic and waiting uh, to, to get out. And, uh, you know, I know somebody else who had a family member of theirs uh, uh, die sort of suddenly in the process of trying to get out. You know, I won't get into the, the details of that particular incident, just out of respect for that family. Um, uh, but there are many others that are like that. And so uh, what I'm hoping is that, you know, there's um, a broad sort of uh, interest, it seems, within the country, like an outpouring of support for refugees and, and speaking out uh, in this particular moment. Uh, but I really hope that it kind of lasts beyond this moment and kind of stays, right? Yeah. Um, I think just as like a veteran, and I think a lot of other vets feel the same way is that, you know, not, not many people were interested in Afghanistan. I, I don't feel, at least personally, uh, when I got back from Afghanistan and try to talk about my experience, people kind of, their eyes blaze over and you're like, you're some nut job, you know, the things you're talking about are insane, right? Like this, you, you, you must, you must be mistaken in how you're kind of framing this. Cause that makes no sense. It goes counter to our understanding. Um, and I think now people are sort of reckoning with this idea of this sort of the contradictions that existed, you know, asking themselves a question of 
how is it possible that a country can collapse in 11 days? Right. Um, and as somebody that was sort of involved in like advising folks that were there, you know, I can say, well, you know, I wish you were asking these questions, you know, uh, way sooner uh, about what was happening and had uh, had cared. And just, I don't know, I feel like often um, just since the time I came back, especially from this last appointment, I feel like people uh, haven't really cared much. And prior to that, I, I did another tour uh, in 2011 and I had gotten back and that was during the uh, sort of troop surge and drawdown period. So I got to see a little bit of both. And when I come back, you know, uh, I think 2014 was when they did, you know, Obama did the, you know, the, the withdrawal. Yeah. And after 2014, it sort of, I sort of forgot about it too. Right. And so I feel like some of this is uh, uh, as, as harsh as it sounds, is also like just human, the way humans operate, which is, at the same time, really upsetting, right? To to, yeah. to to think that people will just forget and move on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was I was there in eleven and twelve when the um, first we were first laying the seed beds for withdrawal and we're publicly announcing that uh, you know troop troop numbers are going to start to decrease and that we're going to start doing more that uh, transfer of authority. Um, and that was an ugly baby. Uh, I don't want to get too much into it, but sure. um, yeah, I, I sort of agree with you. I, I wish there were questions more earlier on of can a country fold in 11 days vice how is a country folding? It, it sounds like to me, you know, there's like the ML COA, right? The enemy's most likely course of action, uh, which is what you plan off of. But then you also plan off of like enemy's most dangerous course of action, and I, I just I wonder sometimes, like I wonder now, like what what was the enemy's most dangerous course of action that you were talking about? And as a former intel professional, I would say that, you know, uh, a rapid sort of collapse of the government probably should have. I mean, I can say this in hindsight, but I mean, I, I think even at the time, um, a lot of us knew that um, uh, senior members of the government, uh, particularly in like the military and in the police force, we're not particularly loyal, right, to yeah. the country itself. Like that's not yeah. like that, that. That was never any um, secret. Like people, people knew that openly. Uh, yeah, and, I, I, really, I mean, I, I could talk about this all day, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know we're getting, sort of going down a rabbit. But one thing I do want to say though, and how it sort of bleeds into what we are going to end up focusing on is, you know, the idea of storytelling and the power of voice uh points of view and when we look at what's going on right now from our standing like what what is the american storyline what is what is the what is the story that veterans are going to be telling vice the story that politicians are going to be telling um where is where does art meet life and where do they not necessarily coexists and i'm really just thinking more about like the perception now that after iraq um i mean you could go about as far back as um you know saigon um you know where where are we sitting like in, in, where what are your some of your thoughts you know as an intelligence professional like this perception of having a moral standing 
in the international community? Like, where where does that fall? Where where are we sitting now? What is our story to tell the rest of the world now? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things is that we have many stories that we can tell, right? And it depends. One of the things I look at often as a journalist is like who's in, involved in telling that particular story, right? Who who have we invited to have a seat at the table to discuss their version or their perspective of things? And often what we saw in journalism in the past was that the folks who were able to tell their stories were a very limited group of people, right, uh, with limited perspectives. And and now, you know, rise in Internet, technology, et cetera, you know, this, this group of people who can voice their opinion in a public manner in a way that a lot of people can kind of see is there. I don't know if the story of Afghanistan has been fully captured, and I don't know if, you know, one person will be able to fully capture it all. Um, and whether or not uh, the United States comes away with one particular message. But it, it, you know, what, what is interesting to me is, you know, what, one of the reasons why, um, you know, I think back to, to 2018, you know, I got promoted to major in like 2017. Uh, and at the time, you know, I, I was, even up to then, I was thinking about, you know, staying in, pursuing the 20 year retirement in the Marine Corps. But what, what was happening to me at the time was this sort of personal uh, um, uh, coming to um, this, this 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 growing disconnect within myself about how um, to communicate ideas that I had, like right, like having something to say, um, and I felt like I had something to say, but I just couldn't quite figure out how to say it. And so I started reading a lot of fiction. I started reading uh, just other other stories, and I would come across some things in some places where I would think wow, they really get me or they really get this idea. You know, I remember reading uh, Light in August by William Faulkner, uh, which follows the journey of a uh, man who's half black in, uh, uh, in, in the U.S. South during a time when um, that, that wasn't easy. And I remember re- reading that and thinking, wow, you know, Faulkner gets it. And, but I couldn't quite articulate what it meant or what it, the it was that I was kind of referring to. I just felt like there was something emotional there that I was more interested in. And I was less interested in, you know, sort of battle tracking or, or yeah. numbers uh, and things like that. And so I started looking into this, this creative writing realm and I started writing stories of my own just in my, in my notebook. Um, and with, with this, with this sort of, uh, drive that I, I had something to say and I wanted to say it. I just hadn't figured it out yet. Uh, I, I think even now with a, uh, MFA, which people at the time were like, dude, what the hell is an MFA? How you <laughs> like, how are you gonna make them living? You know, like, do you realize that journalists make no money? Um, and they're like, you're crazy. You know, you can give up the 20 year retirement. Like, you know, it's only nine more years to go. And I was thinking, you know, I don't, I don't know if I have nine years. Um, you never know what happens. And so this yeah. idea too that, you know, life, life is not forever for everyone. Like we can never tell. And so might as well operate in the moment. And so, uh, you know, I, I ended up doing the MFA and, uh, as I, uh, was doing that kind of journeyed into journalism, uh, and started learning about things that were happening in my own community, uh, that I had little understanding of, right? Like when I, started volunteering with people who are experiencing homelessness, which is the language that we use. Um, it's, it's, it's a, at least in, in that community, um, to denote the fact that somebody, that it's a, like a temporary experience, right? Like people aren't homeless forever. You know, it's not, it's not like an all defining, 
uh, label, right? It's a particular, like a, a, a condition. It's a season. That, that time period, right? Yeah. Uh, that shouldn't be, you know, permanent. Um, and so anyways, when I, when I first dis- discovered, you know, started talking to folks, I had no idea how they ended up where they ended up. And then when people started sharing their stories, you know, it, it started to like, wow, that's, that's really awful. You know, you had this like terrible divorce and, uh, and, and then you went through a period where, you know, uh, you lost your job and, uh, you run, you know, had financial issues and now you couldn't afford rent. Uh, and then you had a horrible experience at a, a shelter, um, because, you know, X, Y, and Z happened and now you're in a tent, uh, and now you're, you're struggling to make sort of the money that you need, right. To, to buy a home because houses are, or to even rent a place because, you know, where I live in DC, rent for like a two bedroom it's right. like grand like how are you gonna how are you gonna afford that and so and then i started like meeting people like who like literally uh, are so poor uh that they have no other recourse but to sort of panhandle right mm-hmm. to, to subsist right to survive to get the meals uh or to, to to just get day by day and i had never really uh paid that much attention to that uh beforehand and i kind of applied my sort of intel skills to that, right? Because I, I would read, I guess, a news story about, or an article about uh, homelessness. Um, and I was like, well, wow, you don't really talk to people who are living in the tents, like on the corner. Let me just go talk to them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I started to discover and sort of on my own, right? To even dismantle my own sort of uh, stereotypes I had about that. I think I've entered a rabbit hole. So if I... No, no, this is... Dude, these are, out. I mean, this is... <laughs> The show's called Scuttlebutt, man. This is, is what we do. These are the kind of rabbit holes we're going to go down. This is really great. Um, and I, I think there's some there's some corollaries here uh, in what we're talking about in this idea of forgetting. Um, I think it's an important theme and why I think storytelling is so important because, you know, we talked a little bit. Of, you mentioned a little bit about the gatekeepers. Um, or I mean, That's not the word you use, but that's the word I'll, I'll say that you used. <laughs> but, yeah, there was like there's a certain narrative that sells books or that uh, major news outlets are going to uh, be, or gravitate towards. Um, you know, they're your, you know, commanding generals of badass task forces or your Medal of Honor winners or you know, your war heroes sorts of things. And so if, from at least the world according to Vic, it seems like the only narratives about the life of a soldier, sailor, marine, or airman is someone who is super badass, and that's a great story. Uh, many times, it's very unlifted, uplifting, and uh, motivating. But there's a 99% of the service, which is less than a 1% of the American population, that that's not the case. They were still heroic. They still did their thing, but they just. But I mean, you, you know how it goes. I mean, yeah, you stood yeah. post, you went on patrol, you know, uh, you know, you, you didn't die today and uh, you ate shitty tray rat food and then you came home and that's that's it. And, you know, your story may me gets, uh, you know, communicated at a bar somewhere when someone's nice enough to buy you a drink or something, but it just goes away. And so the public perception then is. Um, you know, you're either a badass or you're a commanding general. And that that's, those are our, those are our service m- members. And I think we lose some agency there. Uh, and so I think from a journalistic standpoint, you're, you, you know, with your military background and now with your journalism background, like you're in the trenches all the time. And I think 
Um, I don't know, maybe you could speak a little bit to that sort of our moral obligation to not forget uh, and not, you know, not just in Afghanistan or not just in Iraq, but here at home, too. Like, there's a lot of shit going on. These are really tough times for lots of people. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it is interesting because the, the stories that you, you know, like, like you had mentioned, a lot of the stories about veterans center, center around these hero narratives of people who are just, just you know, super badass. And, and you know me uh, and I am decidedly not badass, at least not in the way that these uh, folks are, you know, depicted. And, and there are, you know, plenty of uh, hero badasses that have been in, in the military. But, you know, I'm like, what, five, five, six, a buck 40 you know, soaking wet, you know, I'm not this like huge going to kick down a door. I wouldn't even know how to do that. Right. Got hey, dude, you were the one guy who was boxing. Behind a desk, behind a computer. Yeah. Right. Um, and so uh, but and those stories are not really a, as uh, popular or or uh, told in a way that's um, uh, necessarily truthful. And I think, you know, this idea of not forgetting is uh, I think important, but one of the things I've really learned at becoming a journalist was how important it is to be engaged in your own community. And I think what we forget sometimes uh, if we're in the military and we've lived such a transient experience, you know, going from duty station to duty station is this idea of what forms a, a community that's outside of that. And like, what is an American community? And what I've discovered over the past several years that I've been doing journalism is that there are many people uh, that are uh, not forgetting, right? That are that are deeply involved in the issue, in the issues that matter, that surround their neighborhoods, and are working sort of tirelessly to to help that. But they're a, a small portion of that population, right? They're not they're not everyone. Uh, and you know, I, I, I include myself in that. Like you know, I I um, for a longest time, you know, like I would live in a town and have no idea what was happening at City Hall. Uh, you know, I never would ask about you know why that guy in the corner doesn't have a place to live? Like why that guy in the corner is like so afraid of going to uh, stay in a shelter? Or in, in many cases, you know, for me, I, I'll talk to women who, you know, had uh, a really negative experience at a shelter where they're, they've been assaulted there or uh, uh, experienced something very traumatic and therefore don't like, don't feel safe. Uh, and so, you know, who's going to chase down those leads? And I think a lot of folks are happy to sort of we're busy with our own lives, right? Like there's only so much time in a day and you have to go and, you know, do your own work. Um, but, but if we want to build a better community and if we want to be, you know, um, this, this nice place, you know, uh, being part of a democracy, you know, allows you to be engaged. And if something is important to us, we will be engaged. And what I hope people, you know, will, um, uh, uh, do is, you know, think about the things that matter to you. And if, you know, the war, Afghanistan, what's happening to refugees matters to you. So to be engaged with it, but not just now, but, you know, well into the future, like to not. And I think that's like the act of not forgetting. And for me, you know, I don't know, I, I feel like some of the um, writing and the journalism work I do, I, I feel like it's very much a public service. Uh, I, I think a lot about the stories that I do write, uh, what I write them about uh, and what I try to get people to take away. Right. I, every story I write. I, I try to do it in a way that it gives a reader actionable intelligence. Like, here's what you can do. And, and here's what you can do besides like donating money, right? Like here are concrete yeah. things, like solutions that are being discussed about uh, things we can do. You know, uh, 
here's a voucher program that looks sort of uh, uh, promising or doesn't look promising, uh, but here's what people are saying we can do to help it and, and give people that in, like here, you know, um, the concrete, concrete things that people can do to be involved and, uh, uh, yeah. And so I, I don't know. I think I think that's the act of of not forgetting and, and just sort of. Um, not, not to use so much of this language that has become very popular now and sort of, I feel like, lost a lot of meaning. But, you know, uh, um, I imagine a lot of us have certain kinds of privileges in our life, right? Um, uh, whether it's, you know, have the privilege of being able to live in a home, have a job that pays us well, you know, or pays you well enough to, to survive, you know, the privilege of not being stuck behind in Afghanistan. And it's like, what do we do with these um, small privileges that we have? Uh, and how do we um, get involved? And and most often it's not just like making a social media post, right? Like maybe yeah. instead of that, we can like email a city council member right? yeah. or call a congressman. Yeah. Uh, and so I'll, I'll see people making grandstands on my own Facebook um, uh, uh, um, my own Facebook page. And, my, and I might be guilty of this as well, right? Uh, in the past, but it's like those things are meaningless unless there's a corresponding sort of action within this democratic society that we're living in. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to tease out, man. I, I think, and, and what I want to talk to next about is like, it's sacrifice now. Um, you know, we've, we had like sort of this, one of the things we say uh, at, at Old House Ruble is, you know, it's be, you know, uh, you're blessed to be a blessing or, you know, you're privileged, you're privileged to be a privilege. And so where then does our advocacy or our sacrifice go beyond memes and, you know, 140 character tweets, which I think it's more now, but I, I don't really know technology. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so like that idea then um, of like, especially as we're talking you know, as veterans talking to veterans or talking about veterans where the sacrifice is very tangible, uh, where does it keep going? Uh, and, and does it matter? I guess is the big question. Um, we see so much going on in the world right now. It seems so overwhelming that it's almost it, 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 it can almost like you could get it in a vapor lock if you're you know, if you're not careful, if you're not disciplined and if you're not passionate. And so does it matter? Like, does it matter that we sacrifice on the behalf of others or are we just in a place where I've got to keep my nose to the grindstone uh, and just do what I can when I can? I don't, you know, I don't know if there's one right answer to that, right? I think there's like periods of time where you might have to, you know, uh, keep your head down and sort of, uh, um, carry on, and, and then other times where maybe you're taking a breather and you see something, you can you know do something about it to to do something. But what I what I do, um, what I think was really eye opening to me, making that transition from marine to civilian, was just how many opportunities there are out in the civilian world um, to take action, to do stuff, to serve your community. And before you know, I used to I, I think when you're in the military, like everything you're doing, right, is in part of that service. Um, but when you when you leave, you sort of, like, there was a gray period for me where I'm like, what do I, what do, I do? Like, how do I make myself relevant to society? And I found that there's a lot. 
Um, and I found that there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of things like in service to the community, whether it's like starting their own sort of, um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the words, but uh, you know, where people give, give out food. Uh, uh, like a food bank type thing. Yeah, pantries, like, you know, yeah, uh, people who start pantries or, or draw, you know, helping to tutor uh, uh, children who are at risk or, you know, um, all sorts of stuff that's happening that, that we don't really think about. Uh, and I think in the military, you don't have the time sometimes, right, to, to think about these things. You know, I'm either on a deployment or I'm in a pre-deployment period or I'm in the field training. And so it's like, you know, you might not have the time to think about all these other things. But for folks who are out, you know, there are plenty of opportunities that are out there and a lot of things, you know, um, to do. And I think sometimes it can feel overwhelming because this world is far from perfect. And there's a lot of things we can do to improve it, um, but you can't improve it all. So you kind of have to make a decision as to what you want to dedicate your efforts on. And I think uh, it, it just the sheer scope of stuff that's out there that people are doing is what really hit me uh, hard. And I, I think right now, um, for a lot of folks, at least where I live, uh, and I know this is probably true nationally, is that there is a crisis, uh, and crisis is a word of, that we use um, a lot. It, um, uh, you know, a lot of journalists use a lot to describe sort of the uh, dearth of affordable housing. Right? Housing costs have gone super, super high, and salaries aren't necessarily rising commensurate mm-hmm. to that. And so uh, for folks who you know, are making minimum wage in a lot of places, like even if you work overtime, like you couldn't afford to have an apartment. And that's kind of like rent an apartment, like any kind of apartment, which is kind of ridiculous, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, and so I, I uh, but it's like, what, what are the solutions to that, right? Because you can't just like focus on the problem. You have to think about the solution. And so, you know, um, I, I think I was working on a story and working on a story recently where I, you know, I discovered like one solution was shared housing, right? Like, well, if you can't afford it, like maybe you can afford the, the place if you grab like a bunch of roommates uh, and then figure out this shared living solution. Uh, and maybe there are places that connect you to folks, you know, that have vetted them. And so there are programs like that that are out there. Um, and so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I just think of um, uh, uh, things, ways to make yourself relevant to society, you know, like... I think that's a Marine Corps thing, you know, like you don't sit around and like complain about uh, things that are happening, right? Like you kind of go out and try to find a solution to whatever it is you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it, well, I'm going to tie this back into our talk about narrative um, sure. and how when you have this pervasive narrative of like this sort of the the hero gets to tell the story, um, when you look at something Look at uh, the amount of crises, to use that, that word again, um, that are going on right now. You feel like the, o- the only way I can be helpful is if I do something large scale or grandiose. And because the prevailing narrative isn't that person that because they stood post, because they went on patrol, they helped keep everybody alive. Since that narrative isn't as pervasive as the guy who, you know, uses his arm that hold the grenade, you know, to then kill a, you know, machine gun nest from where he got his arm shot off. Um, so since that isn't what, you know, owns, owns the story or is it, you know, dominating the, the sort of the, the collective 
corporate narrative, then you feel like, well, if I can't do it big, then I can't do it at all. I don't know. Does that does that resonate or am I grasping for straws here? Uh, I think so. You know, one of the things I think about is, you know, when we talk about when I was an intelligence officer and we, we talked about intelligence and how to communicate it. One of the things uh, we looked at a lot was how to present data to people in a way that they would understand it. And so, um, you know, I'm thinking of like, like an infantry battalion commander. And if I'm giving like this person, right, this, this briefing, there are certain ways uh, that I would have to present that briefing in a way that this person will understand, right? Like I can't just be like, you know, uh, uh, starting from just showing like an Excel spreadsheet or some weird chart with right. a bunch of lines and stuff everywhere, like a spaghetti noodle chart. Like, guys, like, get the fuck out of here, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, like, I don't know what the hell it is. Or, like, shut the hell Next up. Slide. Like, Next get, slide. Next you know? slide. Uh, or, you know, what the, hell, what the hell is wrong with you kind of thing. And so um, what, I, what I learned in my career was that, you know, most people, uh, most Marines, the best way they grasp something is through a story. Um, particularly if it's like complicated and, and the t- telling them that story. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time like working in like Excel spreadsheets, putting data and then figuring out how to tell it. And, and complicated problems require that sort of tracking. And, and I'm, I'm doing that now, uh, even with a story I'm doing about some uh, uh, how, how schools are using like American Rescue Plan money. But that's a whole other thing. Uh, but I'm like looking, I'm do, putting stuff in Excel spreadsheets, but trying to craft uh, a narrative out of the data, uh, out of trends that I see in the data. And so I, I don't know, I, I think it's just, it's hard for some folks because, you know, we, we you get inundated with a lot of information, but you don't know necessarily how to process it. And a story in a narrative done in a tight way is easy to do it. The problem is, is that a lot of the narratives that we're familiar with are very simple narratives meant to fit, fit very simple situations, like that, that hero's journey that you spoke of. It's really easy to understand a story about a guy that like attacks a machine gun nest, right? With like grenades and like, you know, or somebody that's like thwarts an enemy attack of like 500 fighters, right? Like, uh, like on, on top of a hill or something. And those stories are important, right? To remember like these, these folks and like the amazing things that they've done. But when we try to talk about more complex problems, like the war in Afghanistan, um, how do we do that in a way that captures it all? And I don't think every, anyone's quite cracked the nut on it yet uh, on how, how to do it in a way that is um, engaging enough for somebody to 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 want to um, read or watch right not in a way that doesn't lead to their eyes sort of glazing over and like yeah I, you know I don't know I mean it is kind of crazy right if you think about it yeah so like a bunch of uh, 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 terrorists from Saudi Arabia uh, like that come legally to the United States and train at a flight school in Florida, uh, go and like fly like their planes into towers, uh, 9-11, but they were connected to this other guy named Osama bin Laden, who's not, who wasn't in Saudi Arabia, but like in Afghanistan, but it ended up being actually living in Pakistan for years, led us to go to war with the Taliban because of their, I mean, just, it's just, you go down this hole and people are just like, already, uh, your eyes are going to glaze over because you're like, this is just so nuts. At the same time, it's like just so information dense, right? Like just yeah, so dense, yeah. all these details yeah. that don't seem to matter. Uh, and also, like we've heard a lot of this already. Yeah. And so, yeah. 
I mean, how much, and so I, I don't know if we've figured out how to, how to tell it just yet. And, you know, obviously it's like at this time, right. It's still unfolding. Uh, well, I think for people like yourself, um, and like other people we've had on the show and, and hopefully more, and I just continue to encourage all of us to participate in the dialogue, man. And, you know, I think that everybody has a story to tell and they're all very important and we need to just find those places outside of social media and outside of the outside of, you know, just amongst our friends, our echo chambers to to have to take control of that agency and don't let the gatekeepers, wherever they may be, sort of dictate, you know, what the collective consciousness is about these issues. Yeah, you know, I, I would also say, you know, kind of push back against the social media thing, too, because, you know, it's here, right? And yeah. so, like, go ahead and use okay. it, right? Uh, and, and uh, you, you know, um, go ahead and use it and, 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 and share, you know, whatever your experiences are, but just understand, I think it's important for people to understand the limits of it, right? Like, doing yeah. social media posts is not being, I mean, it can be engaging, right? And you can have some sort of public debate, and, but there are limits to that. And so, um you know, I think within the military community, one of the things I, I notice a lot within the with veteran community is, you know, there is this growing divide between civilians and, and military and like how to bridge that gap and how to communicate sort of our experiences to folks who are not in the military. And I think that's been a challenge for me as well. Uh, but I think, you know, I think for military folks is to um, to to know and understand that, like, while we've done a lot of interesting uh, great things uh, for the country, right? And have made a lot of sacrifices. Other people have also made sacrifices in other sort of careers uh, that are not militarily connected, but might have been, you know, just as strenuous or, or hard. Um, and so I think there is like this other, like concurrently, um, and I can, I can speak to my own experience, like just having this idea of this, you know, me being exceptional or sort of outstanding or better than someone else because of my service to the country. And, and that's, that's just not true. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, and, and we got to kind of bring ourselves down to earth when we talk about ourselves. Outside. I mean, it's all fun and good when you're, you know, Marine and, and you're like on a joint base somewhere and you, you know, uh, cracking jokes at the expense of the air force guy that's at the table. That's, that's <laughs> all cool. But like when you go out in the civilian, that never happens. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, uh, placing all civilians at the butt of a joke when we're trying to communicate with them, uh, and maybe just taking to understand it. Like not everybody is going to be is going to be a marine, and I don't think everybody has to be one, right? Like because it doesn't make the marines the marines, but also like while the marines might be a very exceptional service uh, uh, or organization. There are also other really exceptional services and organizations that people are doing some incredible things at. And yeah. I think we need to recognize uh, their worth and importance within society as well. And so what I've noticed in like the military echo chambers is it's like we're exceptional kind of thing happening. Yeah. And then just like understanding that like somebody's not going to get everything that we talk about. Um, not the first go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, stay engaged. I like that. Well, I, I guess along those lines, then maybe we could talk more stylistic stuff then. So, you know, there's a growing um, sort of medium, I guess is the word. I don't know. But, um, you know, if you scour Netflix or any of the, the streaming services, you see a lot of this um, docudrama stuff, which, you know, we could call basically long form journalism. Um right. And so you have creative nonfiction, you know, you have 
these tremendous books like um, Rachel Louise Snyder, uh, No Visible Bruises. We've got, um, but then, and then at the same time, we've got you know the sort of a journalistic aspect of nonfiction as well, um, where you are taking sort of. Um, you're providing that sort of authenticity and that authority to someone else. So it's, you know, it's not your story, but you're telling someone else's story, but still using obviously your lens that you just can't separate yourself from. So can we talk a little bit about how that sort of creative nonfiction um, is in dialogue with journalism and how they are not like, a history book or a after action report or, you know, where does that engagement come in? Where does that story, that narrative really permeate um, the text vice? Just like you said, just sort of an information dump. Yeah. And so, you know, I think there's a huge difference between military style writing and uh, journalistic style writing and even with creative nonfiction in some ways, not that they're all mutually exclusive, but there are certain things within the conventions of each, right? Like military style writing re- relies on a lot of key phrases, uh, things that people can kind of browse and look for to understand the situation. Also requires like people who are consuming that stuff, like are all coming from a shared background. And so know what all these acronyms stand for. And in journalism, we can't do that because people are not. So there's like the level of understanding that someone goes into it is gonna be different. And then with creative nonfiction, you're using a lot of storytelling techniques to build things like scene and, and all that. And, and that can happen in journalism. Uh, I've never really seen it in military writing, but it can happen in military writing. Well, actually, no, that's not true. And MCDP, all the MCDPs are, uh, some of them are amazing. MCDP six is like a story, which is, <laughs> I think, really well done. Uh, and you blends a lot of those elements together. And it's also done in a way that uh, people outside of the military can understand. So just to contradict myself. Um, <laughs> That's what we do here. For a second there. Uh, I'm just thinking of it. And when I, re- I remember reading MCDP 6 for the first time, I'm like, wow, the 6 is really well done. And now I actually understand uh, why command and, what command and control is and why that's so important. Um, but uh, to get back at it, you know, I, I think um, uh, there is difference in terms of the conventions, but those differences and lines are blurring. And I think at the end of the day, what matters is what you want to communicate to your audience and how your audience is going to best understand that. And some people, you know, can't understand it until they know what something you know feels like, whether, you know, what what the place smells like and, and, and you know, um, uh, you know, how, how I just, you know, not just what it looks like, but, you know, uh, what, what, the, what a particular food might taste like and. Uh, or what the air might taste like, things like that. And so you'll see that like pop up in creative nonfiction uh, and sometimes in, in journalism. Um, but each kind of has has its place. And I think the level of sensory detail, that kind of stuff is, uh, you know, what you more often see in, in like a creative. Yeah. That idea of like making something more experiential, like more tactile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so I think so what are your thoughts then, um, you know, as a journalist, you seem particularly situated um, to share in those experiences with not only the people you're writing about, but the things that you're writing about. Um, what does that say for uh, how we communicate with one another um, and, you know, what it what it says as far as us crafting 
this narrative that we so desperately have to feel like need to need to be tapping into. Yeah, I think it's important for people to understand sort of the conditions that folks might be in. So I write a lot about housing and, and homelessness. And so I'll visit places that are you know being discussed. And so I, you know, I remember write, writing about one encampment and I was like, yeah, like it smells like piss. And so like I wrote that in my like thing, right? It's, or it smells like urine is what I think the word I used. <laughs> yeah. It's like it reeks of urine, I think is the phrase I used. But like, you know, things like that are, are important for people to kind of take away as well. Um, it, it's just what it's, what it's like to be in a specific place. And I think what's difficult about writing about military experiences or doing journalistic pieces on it is that it can be difficult to describe what it feels like to be there. And obviously I'm a human being. And so what I feel or see or sense is going to be different than what you feel or see or sense. And I even remember being deployed and coming out of the same meeting uh, with like, you know, another, uh, a Marine and us two having a completely different idea of what just happened. (laughs) And so uh, like that, that happens. And so just like recognizing the fact, I think there's a lot of hate too sometimes for journalists but like we're human beings as well. And so we're all subject to sort of human error. Um, and, you know, uh, journalists are generally like generalists. You know, we don't like go and like, spe- like develop a specialty in one field. I mean, we might develop like a beat or whatever, but generally we're not, we're not the um, end all be all experts. We're just trying to introduce people to that. Right, right. Is happening. And so, um, uh, you know, like, I don't know. I, we all have our sort of varying sort of experiences, et cetera, uh, that we bring into our work. You know, my experience in the military like brings me into my work. So like I, um, you know, I, so my, I, I also cover DC government and uh, the impact of their policies. And my experience as like a Marine Corps vet makes me sort of have uh, instilled in me a sort of healthy sense of uh, skepticism at uh, for bureaucracy of any type. Right, of any kind of government bureaucracies, I'm always a little, a little skeptical of 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 what sort of promises are made, or, or um, you know, people that are saying, hey, this this is like a 100% uh, gonna work thing. You know, I'm always uh, really is is that is that true? You know, uh, is is that is that how it's gonna play out? Um, and and I think that that helps my work. Um, nice. Yeah. Wait. I guess going uh, looping back, then we talk about sort of our moral obligations, uh, not just as a country, but as just as human beings living amongst other human beings. Um, so, where you're at, then, um, how much are you, or what are your thoughts, I guess, on like walking? I, I, I find it's hard to not empathize with someone when you've walked in their shoes or at least when you've engaged with their story um do you find that to be the case or are we in an information sort of era where reputation is the thing that's carrying the day um over empathy carrying the day i don't know if i uh, understand that second part so like Um, we have so much information at our disposal now i mean between our phones, tablets, 24-hour news, all this stuff, it's hard for us to discern, to use a trite saying, fake news. Uh, and so I think it's easy for us to just fall back on the reputation of where of our news or our information sources. And there's it's distancing, though. I'm relying on this 
person or this medium or this thing to give me the information and, and to say with relative certainty or at least relative comfort that what I'm the the information that I'm digesting is is true or as true as can be for the time that I'm allotting for myself to ingest this information. But yet when we go into sort of an empathy standpoint and I hear a narrative and I hear a story of somebody and I am taken a little bit in their lives, I've occupied their headspace, I've walked in their shoes, I find it harder for me, even if I don't agree with what I'm being told, I find it harder for me to separate myself from that and to be ambivalent towards it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think, so I think there are kind of two different things, right, that are happening. So I think the one with the media, you know, and, and what to consume because there's so much out there. Um, that's always a very difficult uh, uh, thing to kind of discuss, but I, I always try to shy away from uh, or be very skeptical of people who talk in absolutist terms mm. uh, or, uh, you know, publications that use very absolutist terms or extreme emotionally sort of provoking uh, mm. stuff. Uh, it's, I, I always just a little bit of skepticism. I'm not saying it's going to be bad. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'll read a Slate article here here and there uh, and... and you know, I take I take take them for what it's worth, right? Uh, or like a BuzzFeed sort of piece, uh, but I, and I take it for sort of what it's worth. Um, but I always just when I, when people ask me, right, I just I tell them to just you know kind of raise an eyebrow, like maybe it's something that might be uh, couched in a very extreme way. Um, and if things are also like heavily dependent on like entertainment news mm. or if there's like stuff that's like gossip, I generally try to. Uh, Maybe that shouldn't be the one place you're getting every, all your information about what's happening. But I think on the other level, you know, I think just using the term us, right, and talking about how we have all this access to information is also um, limiting in a way because, you know, I, and this is just because of the demographic that I work with. I like work uh, and talk to a lot of people who are, like, experiencing extreme poverty in the U.S. And a lot of these folks don't have smartphones or don't have, mm-hmm. like, uh, don't have computers at home. Uh, and so... They don't actually have access to a lot of this information. And so when I go out and do a story, I sometimes, you know, will ask their perspective on something that they didn't even know was happening. Like there might be like a community meeting about uh, the space that they've carved out and are living in on like that sidewalk. Uh, and they would have no idea that that's what was happening, you know. Um, and so then I kind of try to bring them into the conversation. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, the, the things I learn are, are things that I are catch me completely off guard. But the person's like, yeah, like, I don't want to be on, on this on this corner, you know, um, like where there's a dearth of public restrooms. Like, I don't know where to go to the bathroom. The shelter says it's like too, too uh, full. And so then when I bring that perspective in, then the community is like, oh, what the hell? Uh, you know, and then they're calling their leaders they're like what's going on at that shelter? Uh, and then also like. This person doesn't want to stay at the shelter. Like, why can't they get into this housing program that our tax dollars are paying for? Um, and so it becomes these other things, you know. And so trying to give people the that that sort of information that's out there. And so I don't know. I kind of encourage folks to when you get lost in like this big these big sort of national narratives to bring things down to the ground. And as you said, like walking in someone else's shoes helps out. And so sometimes the best way to do that is to look um, just around your immediate surroundings, right? 
and look at maybe who's covering it. And uh, I think a lot of local newspapers are doing that. Um, uh, they're disappearing, but the ones that are still yeah. around doing stories uh, about what's happening within your community. Um, and those are oftentimes good places to look to, to see uh, not just what's going around, but what you can do to help um, or, or get involved if you want to get involved. And I'm not trying to point the figure at people that don't have the time to get involved, right? I understand yeah. that everybody has their own life and, and you get busy, right? right? Like you might be working a full-time job and then have kids at home and, and all this stuff. So there's only so much you can do. And sometimes all you can do is maybe donate, you know, 20 bucks now and again, and, that, and that's completely fine. But, you know, stay informed around, of things that are happening around you. You know, sometimes it's good to, um, you know, uh, not necessarily rely on the 24-hour news you might be watching on TV, but, you know, look at the local newspaper, glance at some headlines, read read something um, that's there. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think what you were mentioned earlier about, you know, um, the seasons, uh, just understanding your season, and then when you get sort of the some downtime or find yourself in a comfortable position then maybe look to be a little more active but yeah i absolutely agree you know there's a lot going on and um it can be overwhelming so you know contribute where you can and uh but yeah like you said stay informed i think that's really important yeah well dude we're coming sort of to the end here i do want to talk to you a little bit uh shifting gears massively here but um from a so you have such an interesting sort of journey that you've been on. Um, where uh, do you feel like the Marine Corps um, sort of facilitated your professional development? And where do you feel like it could definitely uh, use some improvement? Well, I'll say that, uh, you know, when I started this job uh, full time, so I've been doing journalism sort of freelance for the past few years and, and working at different publications. When I started this job full time in on June, in June, you know, a few weeks went by. My boss was like, "Hey, Will, I got, I got to talk to you." And I was like, "Okay." So I thought, "I'm, yeah, oh god, I'm in trouble." <laughs> and he's like, um, "Do you eat?" And I'm like, "What do you mean?" He's like, it, "You're just working so much. Uh, like, are you, are you, like, are you good? Like, do you need more time off?" Or and like, "Why is there like something wrong with?" He's like, no, your work is great. It's excellent. You're just like working so much. So I just was curious if you're taking, you know, time off that we've given you, you know, like don't work more than the 40 hours a week. And I, you know, definitely work more than the 40 hours a week. Uh, and that's something the Marine Corps just kind of conditioned me in. If you have a mission, you just go and you complete it. And something about it's like very luxurious about working nine to five. It, just, it seems like, it seems like a half day sometimes. <laughs> so I think the Marine Corps really prepared me well uh, because that's made me stand out every place I've gone. And it's, you know, like to get up to go to a nine o'clock, a job that starts at 9 a.m. is like, that's just so luxurious. Um, right. It, 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 I still can't get over that, how luxurious that is. Take my time sipping coffee in the morning and, and chilling out, having enough time to work out, even without the two hour break in the middle of the day, the 11 to 1300, whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, so the Marine really instilled this like work, this, this, this drive to get things done. And, you know, I never bring up a problem that I don't think I can solve, you know, like without the solution, right? I always present it as a, a solution or pitch a solution um, and, and pitch what I want to do next. And so that's like a Marine Corps sort of preparing me. I think um, where the Marine Corps sort of uh, 
might fall short is um, they, the Marine Corps doesn't really teach you how to integrate into civilian life. As you know, the, the Marine Corps, there's a lot of this exceptionalism narrative. We're the best of the best. Um, and a lot of that can be very toxic when you leave the military. And I've talked to a lot of, and then the Marine Corps, you know, to be quite frank, is a very conservative organization as well. And that's not necessarily reflective of the entire world. And so um, when I left, you know, I, I was kind of taken aback by how different the world on the outside looked uh, uh, of, of the military. You know, this, the diversity of views that I saw was just so uh, much wider in scope um, than I had initially encountered in the Marine Corps. I, I should be quite frank, you know, uh, most of the folks in the Marine Corps, like, had, you know, you still, you share values and, and share ideas about how the world works and how it should work. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I wasn't necessarily as prepared uh, for encountering uh, that much difference in in uh, opinion and ideas um, when I left, and um, and then having that idea, and I've you know run across other Marines that are the same way, where they you know to think that you're the very best of the best of all Americans, better than any anyone doing anything else, is such a very toxic idea, and it's not going to get you very far. Um, and it's cool to use that in the Marines when you're talking amongst Marines to kind of hype yourself up. But it's not something you should be carrying with you uh, beyond the service. You should be recognizing the fact that there are other Americans doing important things for, like, right for the U.S. Uh, and the country. Um, not, I mean, not, and not, I'm not saying that other Americans are better or whatever. I'm just saying that other people also should be included in this um, discussion about, you know, um, who should be appreciated. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. What about um, institutionally? Do you feel like the um, sort of the ways in which we develop future leaders, young leaders, young people, um, do you feel like there is room for growth there? Um, yeah. You know, I think one of the things I got frustrated with as I started to move up in the Marines was you, you can't tell a commander no. Then yeah. Right? Like you can't like your CEO, you can't ever just tell your CEO like no, like no sir, we can't do that. Because you find other ways to say no, right? You like, you know, the, if the CEO tells you to like um, uh, drive all the vehicles into the lake, um, you know, you might be like, oh yes sir, uh, we drove all the vehicles into the parking lot just like you asked, you know. And so you're not you're not saying no, you said yes, but. You said yes to something else, right? Like so, you, I mean, you just do that enough, and then the commander is like, okay, well, I'm not going to ask you to do these ridiculous things anymore because <laughs> clearly you're not going to do it like that. And so, uh, I think getting comfortable with, you know, having this back and you know, back and forth conversation, you know, I I notice in like my workplace now, like it's more of like an equal exchange, um, even though I'm not the person that makes like ultimate decision on things. There is, like, I feel much more on equal footing with like. The CEO, you know, uh, uh, my you know my editor and, and others. Um, there's a little bit more of this free flow of how it is. I think some of it's necessary though, right? Like in the Marine Corps, like it's a hierarchy. There is a mission. At, at the end of the day, someone's got to tell you like this is what you're gonna do. There can't be like prolonged debates about whether or not like you should, you know, be starting to hike at 4:30 versus 4:45, uh, <laughs> right? Like this. Uh, and so I think some of this is necessary. Um, and so I, I don't, I mean, I guess I'm, 
Uh, I'm also trying to be realistic uh, about how much back and forth can be. But, you know, I, I, when I think about my time in the military, you know, some of the best um, forums or places where I, I felt like my skills developed uh, really well were like in EWS or command and staff. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do that um, uh, at, at the actual school, you know, I did that on base and where there was like a colonel who, who led uh, these professional PME sessions and you got to meet with other officers from other places and you'd work on group projects and have discussions, you know, just about what was happening in your own sort of workplace, but elsewhere. And there was this free flow discussion and you felt like you were on equal footing, right? And even though there were assignments from, you know, whoever was in charge, it was like this kind of free exchange of ideas. Um, uh, uh, and I think the more opportunities you get to do things like that, you know, when you when you have a breather, are, are things that would, would help out. I think, you know, from a realistic perspective. So at some point, like a chain of command is there for a reason, right? Like you have to have. Right. Have There's to have a time and place, right? Quickly, and you can't have prolonged debates on everything. Um, and so I think some of that's necessary. And whereas like in a newspaper, you know, sure, we have deadlines, but we can debate about what article goes next. You know, uh, that's, it's, but it's not like, you know, we're talking about moving troops and right. material, right? Uh, to a hotspot location, right? Where shit could go down. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's awesome, dude. All right, last question here for you, man. What was your best day in the Marine Corps? And it can't be the day you get your DD-214. Yeah, the day I got my DD-214 was certainly one of the best, uh, if not one of the best. Um, uh, it was a great feeling. Um, uh, but no, so when I, when I think about it, actually two days come to mind. The first was when I was at OCS on uh, July 4th, uh, 2007. We were in a field putting up tents and taking them down and just constantly. And uh, there was a uh, officer who came to talk to us about, you know, how uh, great it was that we were spending our 4th July doing this kind of activity. Uh, and as I say this out loud, I realize, you know, um, how uh, kind of it's, it's, it just sounds funny to me. Right. Uh, but I remember just being really happy in the moment doing this uh, sort of mindless activity <laughs> exercise and just, I mean, straight uh, sort of institutional hazing, right? Getting us to sort of conform and build bonds with each other. Uh, and I felt really happy doing that. And, I, and it's also there was like a dis disappointment, right? We set them up and then they made us tear them down. And we thought, oh, God, uh, how long is this going to go on for? And it was literally sort of all day. Um, <laughs> But then the other day that comes to mind is, I think it was maybe 2010. Uh, um, I was in Marine Corps Base, Hawaii, in K-Bay, and we were on the rifle range right there on the base, which um, the impact area is like a wildlife sanctuary with like birds and stuff. So anyways, I was there for a night shoot and, you know, you're, I'm on this peninsula jutting out into the ocean. Uh, on K Bay, and it's at night. You got my MBGs on, um, you know, the one eye. And I remember looking, uh, doing this night shoot. You know, we're facing targets and stuff. And I remember uh, looking up just really quick and just catching a glimpse of the stars. And it's like shining, you know, super like beautiful. And then I remember kind of looking over to my right um, and seeing whales jumping in the water. No way. Time. And then, and then I remember 
furious shouts at me and then somebody grabbing me by the collar and they're like you gotta face and like you gotta like dude like we're giving commands and i was completely lost in the moment um uh which i guess you know is is not a good thing when you're on a you know live fire range um but i remember just that being a really excellent uh night uh night shoot and i think a bunch of us were sort of distracted by the whales as well um uh i mean we were we were static we weren't like walking and shooting uh, at that part <laughs> uh, of the range, uh, but uh, it was it was a really it was a really great that was a really great night. And I, really, I mean, it was one of those really long days, but it was just uh, awesome. That's great, man. Well, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time, sort of sharing some nuggets of wisdom and giving us. Um, yeah, I think a really important perspective, uh, not just on what's going on in the world, but um, you know how. Marines uh, active and, uh, you know, those in, in uniform and out can sort of take control of the narrative and can participate and still, like you said, sort of find that same sort of passion in uh, making things better, you know, which is what we do as Marines, right? We always leave things better than when we found them, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess theoretically, uh, although I can't say that of all my experiences in the Marine Corps, <laughs> yeah. that we left every place. It's a good bumper sticker. <laughs> um, but I think we try, you know, we try. Uh, we certainly try. And so, yeah, I appreciate you having me on, on here and uh, always happy to talk. Yeah, thanks, yeah. man. And again, uh, check out Will on uh, at StreetSense, streetsensemedia.org. Um, we'll have links and stuff on the show notes. Uh, but yeah, and then please uh, hit him up uh, on that website. It's uh, will at streetsensemedia.org. And again, we'll, we'll post links and stuff um, to that. So thank you so much, dude, for being on the show. And uh, man, we'll try to see if maybe we get you back on some other time. Okay, sounds good. All right, man, take it easy. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.